So the first part of our reading this morning is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, verses 20 to 33. And that's found on page 1155 of the Church Bibles. So that's 1 Corinthians 14, starting at verse 20, on page 1155. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law it is written... With other tongues and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people. But even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers but for believers. For if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at a time. And someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Lovely to see lots of faces I recognise, a few I don't. It's good to see uh, you. If, you. if you're new, please uh, stick around. We'd love to get to know you a bit more. Come along to some of our cow services and uh, that would be brilliant. Um, how do you know if the Holy Spirit is at work in a church? It's a good question, isn't it? How do you know if the Holy Spirit is at work in a church? What would it look like for the Spirit to be at work in your church? What would it feel like? For the Spirit to be at work in your church. That's a question that's posed by 
Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop in their powerful book, The Compelling Community, which uh, we encourage our ministry apprentices to read and uh, we've gone through uh, before now as a church. Um, I've read this quote before. It bears re-reading. It's a chilling scene. Ezekiel is in exile in Babylon. But suddenly he sees the temple back in Jerusalem. The glory of the Lord, which had filled the temple since the days of Solomon, is pictured as resting on a wheeled throne And the throne is supported by flying cherubim. It begins to move. It departs from the most holy place. It stops at the threshold of the temple. It advances again, rising upward from the temple and then moving over the east gate. Until it's gone. The glory of the Lord has left the temple. Unspeakable horror. Yet nothing appears any different. The temple is still there. God's people are still there. Life continues unaltered. It's all the same, at least for now. What if the same thing happened to your own church? Picture all the elements of community. Your main weekly gathering. The Lord's Supper. Small groups, accountability relationships, conversations after church and so forth. Now picture the spirit of God and his supernatural power rising up and then departing from your congregation. What happens? Do some people immediately feel like they no longer belong? Or do they continue coming to church for mostly the same reasons they did before? Do some friendships instantly dissolve because no bond remains? Or do they survive because they were based on something other than the gospel in the first place? Do you notice a conspicuous change in the conversations people have in your small groups? Perhaps a new reluctance to engage in difficult talk about each other's lives? Or was the self-sacrifice in these relationships never dependent on God's spirit to begin with? Do you begin to see a flood of requests for pastoral counselling because members are no longer bearing each other's burdens? Or have people always seen the pastoral staff as the professionals they call in a time of spiritual need? I hope that our churches would dissolve into chaos the moment God removed his spirit, his supernatural power. But I fear that many of us have built church communities in such a way that Ezekiel's vision could come true in our own day and we would never notice the difference. This term we've been thinking about the work of the Spirit in the life of the church from 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13 and 14. Thanks so much for journeying with us over the last uh, few weeks. I hope you found it as challenging and hopefully encouraging as I have done in preparing the sermons. If you want to think a bit more about um, the whole area of the work of the Spirit, who he is, then uh, I can do no better than encourage you to pick up the book, Who on Earth is the Holy Spirit? We've got a bunch of these downstairs on our church bookstore. They're £4, well worth a little read over the Christmas uh, period, if you would like. And also, don't forget that if you've been away any Sundays, then all our sermons are on YouTube, church website, or Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, that's where you can turn to catch up on what you've missed out on. Well, today we're carrying on exactly where we left off last week, which is halfway through chapter 14. So if you've got your Bibles, now's the time to dig out um, the, the, the Bible or 
turquoise church Bibles around the place. Um, page 1155 is where we're going to spend our time um, this morning. And we actually um, broke the reading at verse 33, but I'm going to finish off the reading from verse 34 to verse 40. And um, a few tricky bits in our passage uh, today, but hopefully the overall message is uh, relatively clear, although it will still be, I imagine, challenging for us all. So let's uh, hear God's word from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Two weeks ago, we heard Paul urge the Corinthians to not overstate and overvalue spiritual gifts. It's not what you do, it's the way that you do it that matters. It's not what goes on stage that counts. One day the curtain call will come for all on stage life. The off stage life, the hidden away life, the life in here life, that will carry on into eternity. Gifts are passing. But it's love that's permanent. So work on your love and your faith and your hope. Get in the habit of doing that now because they will go on through into eternity. That was the big message of 1 Corinthians 13, a powerful message. Then last week, uh, we began our study of 1 Corinthians 14 by saying, look, okay, if if chapter 13 says don't overvalue spiritual gifts, chapter 14 says don't undervalue them. And it's very easy, you see, to just read one Bible passage and live our lives based on one passage and extrapolate that that's what the whole Bible says. Well, actually, it's not what the whole Bible says. And when you read it in context, you say, ah, often Paul is trying to guide us a little bit more carefully. Because the pendulum can be over there and he gives us some teaching and it swings over there. And actually, no, we need to hear the balanced teaching of God's word always. And the big message of chapter 14 verses 1 to 20 was eagerly desire words which build up the church by speaking intelligibly before a watching world. Now, I hope uh, you've had a chance to catch up, maybe some of you in our small group Bible study, if you've discussed this already. Um, But this is what we're looking at, um, uh, we looked at last time, but we had to cut off the last point because we ran out of time. Um, It was a big passage, and again, we've got a lot of material to go through. We won't be able to get through it all, but we'll try our absolute best. Um, But if we were to kind of expand our summary of the chapter to the whole of chapter 14, I think we would also add... In an orderly way, that submits to scripture. So uh, we're going to expand our summary of the whole of chapter 14. Eagerly desire words which build up the church by speaking intelligibly before a watching world. In an orderly way, that submits to scripture. And uh, the plan is really to, um, to look at the bottom um, half of that summary. To remind you what we, we saw last week, if you weren't here, uh, Paul's argument has been that when individual church members gather week after week at church, we're to come and to not think me, but us. That was the big message. Are we thinking me or are we thinking us? You see, the perfect church service isn't one where every single part 
accords with my own preference, thank you very much. And my own taste, thank you very much. Because if it lines up perfectly well all the way down for me, then it's not going to line up perfectly all the way down for you and many other people. And therefore, it's not going to line up perfectly all the way down to God. And it's God who matters most. In the specific context of uh, the Corinthian church, that will mean prioritising word gifts, words that build the church up, desiring words which build up the church, such as little p prophecy, we saw this last time, rather than tongues, which only build yourself up, unless there's an interpreter. That was really the message of the first half of the chapter. And so says Paul, eagerly desire words which build up the church by speaking intelligibly. And then he carries on his argument in verse 20. And he says, have an eye to the more than just believers in the church gathering. Because there are more than just Christians who come to church each week. We have Christians and we have non-Christians, believers and unbelievers. And that's our first lesson today, really. English is thy word which build up the church by speaking intelligibly before a watching world. Verses 20 to 25. Look down in verse 20. Little number 20, if you've got your Bibles there. Brothers and sisters... Stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people. But even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now we need to try and track with Paul's argument. It's slightly challenging, but what he's doing is he is quoting Isaiah 28, which was written 700 years before. And you can see that because if you've got an NIV Bible, like lots of our church Bibles, you see a tiny little D footnote. And if you've got the glasses or the eyesight to see it, Isaiah 28 is seen at the bottom of the page. And this is a passage 700 years earlier where the prophet Isaiah is explaining God is going to send judgment on the people of Israel. And the way the judgment is going to come is because the Babylonian nation, people who don't speak the language of Israel, are going to come and judge the people and punish the people using a language that the Israelites don't know. And um, I guess just kind of zoning back from that for a second, that's just worth remembering that that's one way the Lord chooses to to respond to people who sin, by bringing judgment. Now the fact is that we might struggle with the idea that God would judge people, but he will hold us all to account. He loves to show mercy, but he will judge too, if we haven't responded to his, his mercy and his grace. And one way that he brings his righteous judgment is by exacerbating the confusion of living life away from God. And that seems to be what was taking place in Isaiah 28. In a sense, it's a little bit like the Tower of Babel. I don't know if you remember, back in the start of the Bible, chapter 11 of Genesis, there's a time where God's people, in fact the whole people of the whole world, decide we want to make a name for ourselves. And the best way to make a name for ourselves is to make a tower for ourselves that reaches the heavens and everyone will know how great and majestic we are. And God's like, "Uh not so much. You know, you're not going to be impressive when I confuse your languages. And when someone says, hi there, Pastor Spanner, and someone else says, passe le crew, and you're like, well, I don't know what's going on. Our languages have been lost, and we don't know what we're saying. And that's a way of God judging the people. Well, back in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, this is what Paul seems to say. 1 Corinthians 14, 22. Tongues, then, are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. They are to do something for unbelievers, says Paul. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. In other words, witnessing a cacophony of uninterpreted tongues does nothing to engender faith in our unbelieving friends who come to church week after week. In fact, 
verse 23. So if the whole church comes together, have a look down there, and everyone speaks in tongues and inquiries or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? I think they will. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. And you, you, you go somewhere, you don't understand a word of what's going on. What is going on? You're out of your mind. If it's not intelligible, it won't build up anyone. It won't build up the church. It won't build out the church either. All that kind of confusing language does is bring judgment on people, like at Babel, who don't understand a word of what's going on. They feel completely outside. I don't belong here. And they're going to experience judgment instead of grace. But, verse 24, if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under the judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they'll fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Prophecy is different from tongues. We saw this last week. As unbelievers see and hear intelligible words that build up the church, it's that experience in God's sovereign plan, and God chooses to give gifts whenever he wants to, that can lead people to say, my goodness me, God is among you. There's something special. I'm, I'm hearing and seeing people make sense and people growing outside themselves. They're coming to church, not thinking me, they're thinking us. And it, my, what, I thought, I thought Christianity was dying. But this Christian thing is true. So point one, eagerly desire words which build up the church by speaking intelligibly before a watching world. Now at that point, I want to just simply kind of, you know, address, if I may, those of you who are here today who would not call yourself a believer. I guess many of us would call ourselves believers, but I know there are many people perhaps who are here who who know you're not a Christian, and others who are kind of not sure. You may be a Christian, but you're not not quite sure where you stand. Maybe you're here because a family member is here, a spouse, parent, child brought you along. Lovely that you're here. Maybe you live locally. You've picked up one of our carol service flyers and you wanted to come along to church. There's always people who, who are dropping by high foots. And we love having, having guests who, who aren't yet believers with us. And I just wanted to say, address you directly and say, I'm really sorry if you've ever been on a Sunday or to one of our other meetings at, at church and not understood what was going on. Because that is our bad We are responsible for for doing things intelligibly. If there's something that has been said or something has been sung or maybe a notice has been given or a bit of jargon, we can often slip into kind of jargon language and it makes you feel like a bit of an outsider. I'm really sorry when we've done that. That is not how God has called us to operate as church. That's a challenge for for those of us running services. It's a challenge for all of us as we seek to have conversations after, after the service. Don't just slip into jargon or slip into a certain kind of uh, 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 phrasing. Make sure it makes sense as we talk to each other. And um, my prayer is if it does make sense as you hear someone talking to you and you you get the point of what's being said, I hope you realise there's something miraculous going on at that point. Because what you're seeing today at Highfields doesn't just happen. This is not a social engineering experiment with a bunch of people who are quite similar, who are all into the same kind of music or the same kind of things, gathering together on a cold and frosty Sunday morning. Now, there's nothing normal about young and old people gathering together or men and women gathering together or English and Welsh and nations from around the world gathering together. Students and families and singles and empty nesters, those with joy in their hearts, those with brokenness in their hearts. Why on earth would we lot gather together for 90 minutes on a Sunday morning when it's cold when we could be thinking about 101 other things before Christmas? Well, I think it is because God's Spirit is at work here. This is not a normal thing. 
You read the, the census that was just published this last week. It says that Cates, our borough, is the, the least religious, the most secular borough in the whole of Wales. And yet, look at you all. There's just hundreds of us here. That is bizarre. It's not normal. It's supernatural. It's a sign of God's spirit at work. And we praise him for that. And if you're not a believer, I hope you're looking on and thinking, gosh, what on earth is going on here? That's weird. Maybe God is amongst you. First point. What takes place has to happen before a watching world. Second point, in an orderly way. In an orderly way. That's the second point of the passage. And it's in verses 26 to 33. Now, I need to clarify this point because there is a key verse in the middle of this passage, which is, I think, the key that unlocks some fairly challenging verses around it. Okay, And the key verse is verse 29. So um, that's the real one which we kind of focus in on now. So let me read verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak... And the others should weigh carefully what is said. Let me try and explain why I think that is the key for the passage. I think the first phrase of that, one or two, sorry, two or three prophets should speak. I think that maps onto verses 26 to 33 of the passage. I'll give you a second just to kind of look at that. That's what's going on in verses 26 to 33. And then the second half of the sentence, which is the others should weigh carefully what is said, seems to map onto verses 34 to 40. And I hope that will be a bit of a key to unlock what's going on. And what we're going to do is we're going to break it down and look at them in turn. We last time, when we were here last Sunday, we thought a bit about the why of prophecy, the building up of the church, the what of prophecy. Um, and here we're going to think about the how of prophecy. Let's look at verse 26. When, what shall we say, when we, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Now just remember, original context, this is Paul speaking to the Corinthians. And at this particular time and place, this was the big issue at stake. Now, every church is different in God's plan around the world throughout history. And we need different correctives to keep us on the straight and narrow. This is what Paul thought that the Corinthians needed. Uh, But it's worth remembering that because in verse 26, we're not to read that and say that is a normative expectation for every church every time throughout the world. Because it says, look... When people come together, you have a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. They're really good things which were going on. No mention of prayer, but we should be praying. There's no mention of giving money. We should be giving money. There's no mention of the Lord's Supper or baptism when, when people come together. So it's, this is not kind of a, a description of the, kind of the ideal worship service. That's not the plan. But they were going on in Corinth, and Paul is correcting it and saying, this is what needs to be done, that everyone, well, excuse me, that everything must be done so that the church may be built up, verse 26. And in order for that to happen, there needs to be an order in all that happens, if you can excuse the pun. There needs to be an order. It can't be just a chaotic, selfish, one-upmanship, kind of pushing into each other where one person speaks over another person. I don't think Paul had the House of Commons uh, at Westminster in mind where you kind of get the kind of chaotic shouting out and order, order that the speaker has to say. No, this is what uh, he instructs us in. Verse 27, if someone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at a time and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Then our key verse, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first person should stop, for you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. It's not a kind of a disordered, spontaneous chaos. There is control going on. 
For God is a, not a God of disorder, but of peace. Now, a few people have asked me, okay, Dave, so what actually is prophecy? And again, I want to say it's, it's, it is hard to, kind of, to, to get much more than 1 Corinthians 14. Um, I think, to be honest, the size of the gathering makes a bit of a difference here because uh, we're told that in a, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, there was a, that the church met you know, in part in Chloe's household. There's a house, house church going on there. And if you've got 20 or 30 people, a bit like one of our life groups or 20 groups or small groups, then what's described here actually sounds quite like what we do in our Bible study groups or our reflection groups where we, where we, where we share together and someone speaks and someone else speaks, etc., etc., um, and in that context, Paul would say, don't all kind of dive on top of each other, but allow everyone to share a contribution. And remember, we're in the business of little p prophecy, not capital P, authoritative, nail it in the back of your Bible kind of stuff, but non-authoritative, sharing of God's word and, and how that word is affecting us and, and bearing fruit in our lives. It's a bit like, um, I don't know if you remember when um, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and uh, he says, you can't see the Holy Spirit, but you, just like you can't see the wind, but you know where it's come from and where it's going. And it feels like it's quite hard to define exactly what prophecy is, but you can see what happens when it's there. Because people, verse 3 of chapter 14, are strengthened and encouraged and comforted. And, uh, and I think those things go on whenever, um, whenever prophecy is happening. As I say, I think it's happening a load in our church family, in the small group discussions, and uh, maybe the conversations that happen after church where someone says, I really feel God has been saying this to me, and I want to encourage you with that. And that is a really wonderful thing, because you know it's so easy, isn't it, after the service, to, to allow Satan to snatch the seed away, and all we want to talk about is Christmas shopping, or football, or whatever it may be. And no, I'm not going to do that. I want to use the gift of prophecy and, and words and encouragement to share with someone else what God has been saying to me. You know, I've been uh, reflecting this with our uh, ministry apprentices this last week. And I, I uh, was talking with them and asked them you know, what God has been saying to them over the course of the last, uh, the last few um, weeks. And so I've, I've asked uh, Esther and uh, Toby to come and share with us a little bit about what they feel God has been saying to them over the course of our story. So Esther, come and join me up. Fine, and then I'll have Toby as well. Esther, why don't you stand there? Uh, We were talking about what we feel God has been saying to us over the course of our studies. Esther, do you want to just share with us what what you feel God has been putting on your heart? Yeah, um, so I think a lot of the themes that have come through is that idea of coming to serve one another. So, as sounds like he's paying me to say this now. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's not uh, me, but an us. Um, So I've just been challenged as, like, as I'm coming to church, what's my attitude? Am I looking uh, to be served, to get as much as I can out of church or looking to come to serve other people. Uh, and quite honestly, often it's probably the first, um, but I've been kind of reflecting and praying and, and thinking on how and what it might look like if I come to serve other people. So what, what, yeah, what's my conversations? Who am I talking to? And so, yeah, that's been my reflection. Thank you so much, Esther. That's great. Um, why don't you have a seat? Toby, come up here and uh, share with us what, what you feel that the Lord's been kind of laying on your heart from our, our time. Yeah, no, sure. Um, so it's two things, really, that I want to share quickly. Um, so the first, uh, in chapter 12, when we were looking at uh, the gifts and how they've been distributed, um, verse 14 uh, to 15, For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And um, it's been really amazing, actually, uh, reflecting on this with my Nexus group um, and chatting about it and you know, really realizing that we all have that different part to play. Um, and there was a lot of joy that came from that. And um, since reflecting on that, having the privilege of being in the church building during the week and seeing 
people coming in and out and serving um, in all sorts of ministries. Um, and yeah, there's, there's something really beautiful about that. Um, and so, yeah, I think from this passage, just a greater awareness of what is going on in the church. Mm. Uh, and the fact that that is gifts and that is supernatural. Mm. Um, the second thing uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, verse 10. Uh, but when the perfect comes, or in the NIV it says completeness. Uh, when the perfect comes, um, the partial will pass away. And i uh, just been really uh, reflecting on that. And uh, the reality is... It's not if the perfect comes, if completeness comes, it's when the perfect mm-hmm. comes. Um, we, we have a sure and future hope. And so just been reflecting on that, and it's been bringing bring me really great joy, to be honest. And uh, just seeing that in, in the gathering on Sunday, uh, when we're singing together and just thinking, this is partial, this is a taste, but it's, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're going somewhere far better, where we'll see completely the glory of God. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, some thoughts and reflections. Thanks, and thanks, Toby. That's great. Do you have a seat? Excellent. Seems good there. One at a time. I'm not saying that you know, one of them had a kind of hotline to heaven and this is the, the, the kind of authoritative nail in the back of your Bible kind of thing, but I think that kind of reflection on what God is saying, sharing it with each other, blesses, encourages, comforts, urges us all in our walk with God. I think that's the kind of thing that's going on in 1 Corinthians 14, honestly. Remember the key verse, verse 29, it's on the screen. Uh, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And as I said uh, a little bit earlier, the first half maps onto verses 26 to 33, second half maps onto 34 to 40. Well, what's our summary of the passage so far? We've seen eagerly desire words which build up the church by speaking intelligibly, intelligibly before a watching world in an orderly way, one after the other, that submits to scripture. That's our last big point as we begin to wrap up. And, uh, and here we're in verses uh, 34 to 40, if you've got your Bibles open. And uh, there's nothing like lobbing a hand grenade into the middle of a church in the last service before the carol season begins. So uh, what, what, what's going on here? Well, we don't want to miss the wood for the trees, but let me read the words because they're there. Verse 34, women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, what on earth is Paul saying there? Uh, And has they've just disobeyed the Bible? Because I just, that moment, had Esther uh, speaking, sharing in church. How do we hold these verses, you know, in the 21st century in Cardiff, for goodness sake? Well, a few things... Um, just by way of kind of comment, and there's loads we could say which we don't have time to say. Very happy to take questions afterwards or email me, etc. But I don't think at all Paul can be meaning women can't prophesy or pray in church because he has said they can three chapters earlier. So um, in chapter 11, verses 4 and 5, he says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonours her head. The point is not you know, that they're praying or prophesying, it's just the way they're doing it. But it's a given that they would be praying or prophesying in the right kind of way. Likewise, at the end of our passage, you've got chapter 14, right at the end, it says, therefore my brothers and sisters be eager to prophesy. So there's an, every sense that women can be speaking in church. 
Indeed, Paul is extremely pro-women's ministry in the gathering of God's people. Prayer, prophecy, this is what he wrote in uh, Philippians chapter 4, speaking about the vital role that women played uh, working alongside him. I urge, I plead with Euodia, I plead with Syntergy, there are two women in the church, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, this is someone he's writing to, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. So do you hear the language that Paul is using there? They've contended by Paul's side, they're co-workers in the gospel, names in the book of life. That's the kind of language he uses to say, these are really significant partners in the gospel with me. Now the fact is, and we can give loads more illustrations than this, but I would argue that even though lots of people are down on Paul a lot of the time in relation to women, I think Paul's actually only following the Lord Jesus, his own saviour, who chose women to be the ones who would hear about Jesus' birth at the beginning. And it was women who were chosen to be eyewitnesses of his resurrection at the end of the gospel. And it's women who were invited to listen to Jesus and to sit at his feet and to learn and to, to grow in their thinking and their, their love for him. So, what on earth does he mean with 1 Corinthians 14, 34? Women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak. must be in submission, as the law says. Well, I think to help us think about this just for a second, we need to realise this is not the only group of people, even in the context of prophecy and the gathering, who are being told to be silent. Just note this. So, if you wanted to publicly speak in tongues and you feel like you've got the gift of speaking in tongues, but there's no one to interpret, in 1 Corinthians 14, 38, it says, if, um, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 14, 28, it says, if there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet. Ah, interesting. So I want to use my gift. You've got to be quiet because... So that's not the, it's not just women who need to be quiet here, but it's, it's people who want to speak in tongues but don't have an interpreter. And indeed, if you wanted to prophesy publicly, but someone else is prophesying, well, you need to be quiet until it's your turn. Then you kind of put your hand up. So we've all got to kind of restrain ourselves to a degree. It's not like an unbridled, do what you want to do at all, in fact. It's all about blessing the body. So what is Paul talking about women keeping silent here, verses 34, 35? I think, again, it comes back down to that key verse which we've been saying in verse 29. So look in 29 again. Two or three prophets should speak, which I would include women in that, as well as men. And the others should weigh carefully what is said. So I think it all comes down to what the others is referring to. I think the only, the only way I could understand Paul intelligibly meaning women should stay silent in the churches in verses 33 and 30, or 34 and 35 is it's in the role of the others. In other words, the weighers of prophecy must not be women, according to Paul. And I think the reason he would say that is because in God's good design, those who are responsible for the spiritual oversight, the authority within the church and its gathering, the, the spiritual gatekeepers, if you like, to ensure that the truth is told and that error is not, are the elders who are akin to the spiritual fathers of the church, who here at Highfields, we believe, Paul limits to biblically qualified men. Now, that's a whole other different discussion, but I think that's what he's doing in 1 Corinthians 14. Um, in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 31, um, and in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, if you're taking notes, Acts 20, 28 to 31, Titus 1, verse 9, there, Paul explains that the elders are responsible for guarding the, the sheep and the spiritual direction of the church. It would seem absolutely right that they're the ones, therefore, who are weighing the kinds of prophecies that get said to ensure that it lines up with biblical teaching. Um, 
And uh, it's that weighing of prophecy, I would argue, that uh, Paul says is limited to men, and so women should be silent at that level. Not at every level, but just at that very particular niche area of biblical authority. So that's why we're very happy for women to uh, take part in our Sunday services, like um, Esther did just now, and Maisie in our first service, to share their reflection, what God had moved their hearts to, to bring to us. But it was me who... Um, kind of evaluated that a few days ago. I'm, I was the kind of spiritual gatekeeper, if you like, to check that what they were saying was the kind of thing that I thought lined up with biblical teaching. And if it didn't, then it would have been left behind. But given that I was convinced it did line up, we got to share it. That's how we understand it. Now, I know there's loads more we could say, but let's not be hung up by that one verse, because um, I think the big point that um, we need to submit to Scripture is the clear and, and, and central one. If you do want to dig a bit more into the whole area of the role of men and women in uh, the life of the church, then there's a brilliant new book that I've just read, just come out, called Embracing Complementarianism by Graham Bynan and Jane Tour. And if you've got questions on this topic, that book, which we're going to stock on the bookstall in the new year, is a fantastic one and well, well worth digging into. And uh, as ever, please get back to me if you've got questions or clarifications. I'd love to do my best. Um, I think the main point that Paul is saying is that all contributions that take place in church life need to submit to the scripture. Uh, And that is why I think he says what he does in verses 36 to 38. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. In other words, I think when he talks about the word of God originating and he talks about writing with the Lord's command, the Lord's authority, and if you ignore that, then you should be ignored. Well, that's him saying, yes, there's little p prophecy. And yes, that's a valuable thing. However, we see it enacted in our church gatherings, centrally or very possibly after church in small groups, etc., etc. But there's that and there's big P prophecy, authoritative, final word from God, authority that guides us and guards us. And that is where um, we need to submit any kind of little P prophecy to, which is a good lesson for us all, isn't it? Whenever people share ideas in a Bible study, it might be that we're doing a Bible study and someone says, well, to me it means this, to me it means this. And we kind of, if we're not careful, read our view into the passage. To me, it means this. Well, what we really want is, what does the passage mean for itself to be and allow the Bible to shape any kind of contribution that we may, may make? And um, how does it compare with the Scriptures? We do need to continually, continually do that. So I do think um, in uh, Acts chapter 17, it's the Bereans who are described as those of, quote, noble character, more than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examine the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Can you imagine that? They're hearing the Apostle Paul preaching. But they're like, yeah, Paul, but where's it in the Bible? They just want to get, make sure that when they hear Paul preaching, it lines up with the scriptures, which it did. And that's a great discipline for us all to do. Whenever we hear God's word, is, is they, they could just have the gift of the gab, but does it line up with the Bible? Let's examine the scriptures continually. It needs to submit there. One closing little reflection before, we, before we're done, and that is to say, all this talk of prophecy and revelation and words of instruction, some of us may get a bit stuck by thinking, look, I've got a big decision to come up with, and I really want God to guide me really, really specifically. Please, God, give me a prophecy about it. Give me an instruction, a word of revelation, and without that, then I can't decide. Now, that's a huge question, but I think that um, what I would want to say to you is that, yes, I do think uh, these, these gifts are present today, 
But the Bible wants to finally and fully say we have been given everything we need to, to, to make decisions for life and for godliness in the revealed word of God. And if you are struggling a little bit with the question of guidance and how God leads and guides us today, then there's a great book called Just Do Something, which is by Kevin DeYoung. And I uh, encourage you to read that if you're struggling with a decision that you need to make. That will help you evaluate the factors at play uh, in a really powerful way. Well, how do you know if the Holy Spirit is at work in a church? How do you know? I think Paul would say, is there a growth in love? A growth in that inner life expressed in an outer life? He would say, is there an eagerness to serve? He would say, is there a, a thinking us rather than thinking me? It's so easy to come with thinking me rather than us. And he would also say, is there a hunger for God that he might give us words that can bless others. He would say, friends, I eagerly desire, earnestly desire words which build up the church by speaking intelligibly before a watching world in an orderly way that's the midst of scripture. And if we do that and see that happening in our body, that's not normal. That, I would argue, is a supernatural work of God's spirit. And we praise him wherever we see it. Let's bow our heads and pray. We bow before you in our hearts, Sovereign Lord, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We praise you, Father, for your initiation of salvation. We praise you, Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, the one who is worked and won salvation, coming, living, dying, rising, that we might know you. And we praise you, Holy Spirit, for drawing us into relationship with yourself, making that objective gospel subjectively real in our lives. We praise you that you empower us to know you. We praise you that you give us gifts to serve you. We pray, please, would we see your work in our lives more and more powerfully. We pray, please, would you build us up, and as you build us up, would you receive the glory in everything that takes place. Not for our sake, or the name of Highfields, but for yours, and the name of King Jesus, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.